0: Chapter 5, Section 2 The Reign of Louis XIV Setting the Stage In 1559, King Henry II of France died, leaving four young sons. Three of them ruled, one after the other, but all proved incompetent. The real power behind the throne during the period was their mother Catherine de' Medici. Catherine tried to preserve royal authority, but growing conflicts between Catholics and Huguenots, French Protestants, rocked the country. Between 1562 and 1598, Huguenots and Catholics fought eight religious wars. Chaos spread through France. Religious Wars and Power Struggles In 1572, the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre in Paris sparked a six-week nationwide slaughter of Huguenots. The massacre occurred when many Huguenot nobles were in Paris. They were attending the marriage of Catherine's daughter to a Huguenot prince, Henry of Navarre. Most of these nobles died, but Henry survived. Henry of Navarre Descended from the popular medieval king, Louis IX, Henry was robust, athletic, and handsome. In 1589, when both Catherine and her last son died, Prince Henry inherited the throne. He became Henry IV, the first king of the Bourbon dynasty in France. As king, he showed himself to be decisive, fearless in battle, and a clever politician. Many Catholics, including the people of Paris, opposed Henry. For the sake of his war-weary country, Henry chose to give up Protestantism and became a Catholic. Explaining his conversion, Henry reportedly declared, quote, Paris is well worth a mass. In 1598, Henry took another step towards healing France's wounds. He declared that the Huguenots could live in peace in France and set up their own houses of worship in some cities. This declaration of religious toleration was called the Edict of Nantes. Aided by an advisor who enacted wise financial policies, Henry devoted his reign to rebuilding France and its prosperity. He restored the French monarchy to a strong position. After a generation of war, most French people welcomed peace. Some people, however, hated Henry for his religious compromises. In 1610, a fanatic leaped onto the royal carriage and stabbed Henry to death. Louis XIII and Cardinal Richelieu. After Henry IV's death, his son, Louis XIII, reigned. Louis was a weak king, but in 1624 he appointed a strong minister who made up for all of Louis's weaknesses. Cardinal Richelieu became, in effect, the ruler of France. For several years, he had been a hard-working leader of the Catholic Church in France. Although he tried sincerely to lead according to moral principles, he was also ambitious and enjoyed exercising authority. As Louis XIII's minister, he was able to pursue his ambitions in the political arena. Richelieu took two steps to increase the power of the Bourbon monarchy. First, he moved against Huguenots. He believed that Protestantism often served as an excuse for political conspiracies against the Catholic king. Although Richelieu did not take away the Huguenots' right to worship, he forbade Protestant cities to have walls. He did not want them to be able to defy the king and then withdraw behind strong defenses. Second, he sought to weaken the nobles' power. Richelieu ordered nobles to take down their fortified castles. He increased the power of government agents who came from the middle class. The king relied on these agents, so there was less need to use noble officials. Richelieu also wanted to make France the strongest state in Europe. The greatest obstacle to this, he believed, Was the Habsburg rulers, whose land surrounded France. The Habsburgs ruled Spain, Austria, the Netherlands, and parts of the Holy Roman Empire. To limit Habsburg power, Richelieu involved France in the Thirty Years' War. Writers turned towards skepticism. As France regained political power, a new French intellectual movement developed. French thinkers had witnessed the religious wars with horror. What they saw turned them towards skepticism the idea that nothing can ever be known for certain. These thinkers expressed an attitude of doubt towards churches that claimed to have the only correct set of doctrines. To doubt old ideas skeptics thought was the first step towards finding truth. Montaigne and Descartes Michel de Montaigne lived during the worst years of the French religious wars. After the death of a dear friend, Montaigne thought deeply about life's meaning. To communicate his ideas, Montaigne developed a new form of literature, the essay. An essay is a brief work that expresses a person's thoughts and opinions. In one essay, Montaigne pointed out that whenever a new belief arose, it replaced an old belief that people once accepted as truth. In the same way, he went on, the new belief would also probably be replaced, replaced by some different idea in the future. For these reasons, Montaigne believed that humans could never have absolute knowledge of what is true. Another French writer at the time, René Descartes, was a brilliant thinker. In his Meditations on First Philosophy, Descartes examined the skeptical argument that one could never be certain of anything. Descartes used his observations and his reason to answer such arguments. In doing so, he created a philosophy that influenced modern thinkers and helped to develop the scientific method. Because this, he became an important figure in the Enlightenment, which we will read about in Chapter 6. Louis Fourteenth Comes to Power The efforts of Henry IV and Richelieu to strengthen the French monarchy paved the way for the most powerful ruler in French history, Louis XIV. In Louis's view, he and the state were one and the same. He reportedly boasted, quote, L'état c'est moi, meaning quote, I am the state. End quote. Although Louis the Fourteenth became the strongest king of his time, he was only a four-year-old boy when he began his reign. Louis, the boy king. When Louis became king in sixteen forty-three, after the death of his father Louis the Thirteenth, the true ruler of France was Richelieu's successor, Cardinal Mazarin. Mazarin's greatest triumph came in 1648 with the ending of the Thirty Years' War. Many people in France, particularly the nobles, hated Mazarin because he increased taxes and strengthened the central government. From 1648 to 1653, violent anti-Mazarin riots tore France apart. At times, the nobles who led the riots threatened the young king's life. Even after the violence was over, Louis never forgot the fear or his anger at the nobility. He determined to become so strong that they could never threaten him again. In the end, the nobles' rebellion failed for three reasons. Its leaders distrusted one another even more than they distrusted Mazarin. In addition, the government used violent repression. Finally, peasants and town people grew weary of disorder and fighting. For many years afterward, The people of France accepted the oppressive laws of an absolute king. They were convinced that the alternative, rebellion, was even worse. Louis weakens the nobles' authority. When Cardinal Mazarin died in 1661, the 22-year-old Louis took control of the government himself. He weakened the power of the nobles by excluding them from his councils. In contrast, he increased the power of the government agents called intendants, who collected taxes and administered justice. To keep power under central control, he made sure that local officials communicated regularly with him. Economic Growth Louis devoted himself to helping France attain economic, political, and cultural brilliance. No one assisted him more in achieving these goals than the Minister of Finance, Jean-Baptiste Colbert. Colbert believed in the theory of mercantilism. To prevent wealth from leaving the country, Colbert tried to make France self-sufficient. He wanted it to be able to manufacture everything it needed instead of relying on imports. To expand manufacturing, Colbert gave government funds and tax benefits to French companies. To protect France's industries, he placed high tariffs on goods from other countries. Colbert also recognized the importance of colonies which provided raw materials and a market for manufactured goods. The French government encouraged people to migrate to France's colonies in Canada. There the fur trade added to French trade and wealth. After Colbert's death, Louis announced a policy that slowed France's economic progress. In 1685 he cancelled the Edict of Nantes which protected the religious freedoms of Huguenots. In response, thousands of Huguenot artisans and business people fled the country. Louis's policy thus robbed France of many skilled workers. The Sun King's Grand Style In his personal finances, Louis spent a fortune to surround himself with luxury. For example, each meal was a feast. An observer claimed that the king once devoured four plates of soup, a whole pheasant, a partridge and garlic sauce, two slices of ham, a salad, a plate of pastries, fruit, and hard-boiled eggs in a single sitting. Nearly 500 cooks, waiters, and other servants worked to satisfy his tastes. Louis controls the nobility. Every morning, the chief valet woke Louis at 8.30. Outside the curtains of Louis's canopy bed stood at least a 100 of the most privileged nobles at court. They were waiting to help the great king dress. Only four would be allowed the honor of handling Louis his slippers or holding his sleeves for him. Meanwhile, outside the bedchamber, lesser nobles waited in palace halls and hoped Louis would notice him. The kingly nod, a glance of approval, a kind word, these marked, marks of royal attention determine whether a noble succeeded or failed a duke recorded how Louis turned against nobles who did not come to court to flatter him. Quote, He looked to the right and to the left, not only upon rising but upon going to bed, at his meals, in passing through his apartments or his gardens. He marked well all absentees from the court, found out the reason for their absence, and never lost an opportunity of acting towards them as the occasion might seem to justify. When their names were in any way mentioned, I do not know them, the king would reply haughtily, Duke of Saint-Simon. Having the nobles at the palace increased royal authority in two ways. It made the nobility totally dependent on Louis. It also took them from their homes, thereby giving more power to the intendants. Louis required hundreds of nobles to live with him at the splendid palace he built at Versailles, about 11 miles southwest of Paris. As you can see from the pictures on the following page, everything about the Versailles Palace was immense. It faced a huge royal courtyard dominated by a statue of Louis XIV. The palace itself stretched for a distance of about 500 yards. Because of its great size, Versailles was like a small royal city. Its rich decoration and furnishings clearly showed Louis's wealth and power to everyone who came to the palace. Patronage of the Arts Versailles was a center of the arts during Louis's reign. Louis made opera and ballet more popular. He even danced the title role of the ballet The Sun King. One of his favorite writers was Molière, who wrote some of the funniest plays in French literature. Molière's comedies included Tartuffe, which mocked religious hypocrisy. Not since Augustus of Rome had there been a European monarch who supported the arts as much as Louis. Under Louis, the chief purpose of art was no longer to glorify God as it had been in the Middle Ages, nor was its purpose to glorify human potential as it had been in the Renaissance. Now the purpose of art was to glorify the king and promote values that supported Louis's absolute rule. Louis fights disastrous wars. Under Louis, France was the most powerful country in Europe. In 1660, France had about 20 million people. This was four times as many as England and ten times as many as the Dutch Republic. The French army was far ahead of other states' armies in size, training, and weaponry. Attempts to expand France's boundaries. In 1667, just six years after Mazarin's death, Louis invaded the Spanish Netherlands in an effort to expand France's boundaries. Through this campaign, he gained 12 towns. Encouraged by his success, he personally led the army into the Dutch Netherlands in 1672. The Dutch saved their country by opening the dikes and flooding the countryside. This was the same tactic they had used in their revolt against Spain a century earlier. The war ended in 1678 with the Treaty of Nijmegen. France gained several towns and a region called Franche-Comte. Louis decided to fight additional wars, but his luck had run out. By the end of the 1680s, a European-wide alliance had formed to stop France. By banding together, weaker countries could match France's strength. This defensive strategy was meant to achieve a balance of power in which no single country or group of countries could dominate others. In 1689, the Dutch prince William of Orange became the king of England. He joined the League of Augsburg, which consisted of the Austrian Habsburg Emperor, the kings of Sweden and Spain, and the leaders of several smaller European states. Together, these countries equal France's strength. France at this time had been weakened by a series of poor harvests. That, added to the constant warfare, brought great suffering to the French people. So, too, did new taxes, which Louis imposed to finance his wars. War of the Spanish Secession Tired of hardship, the French people longed for peace. What they got was another war. In 1700, the childless king of Spain, Charles II, died after promising his throne to Louis XIV's 16-year-old grandson, Philip of Anjou. The two greatest powers in Europe enemies for so long were now both ruled by the French Bourbons. Other countries felt threatened by this increase in the Bourbon dynasty's power. In 1701, England, Austria, the Dutch Republic, Portugal, and several German and Italian states joined together to prevent the union of French and Spanish thrones. The long struggle that followed is known as the War of the Spanish Secession. The costly war dragged on until 1714. The Treaty of Utrecht was signed in that year. Under its terms, Louis' grandson was allowed to remain the king of Spain so long as the thrones of France and Spain were not united. The big winner in the war was Great Britain. From Spain, Britain took Gibraltar, a fortress that controlled the entrance to the Mediterranean. Spain also granted a British company an Asiento, permission to send enslaved Africans to Spain's American colonies. This increased Britain's involvement in trading enslaved Africans. In addition, France gave Britain the North American territories of Nova Scotia and Newfoundland and abandoned claims to the Hudson Bay region. The Austrian Habsburgs took the Spanish Netherlands and other Spanish lands in Italy. Prussia and Savoy were recognized as kingdoms. Louis's Death and Legacy. Louis's last years were more sad than glorious. Realizing that his wars had ruined France, he regretted the suffering he had brought to his people. He died in bed in 1715. News of his death prompted rejoicing throughout France. The people had enough of the Sun King. Louis left a mixed legacy in his, to his country. On the positive side, France was certainly a power to be reckoned with in Europe. France ranked above all other European nations in art, literature, and statesmanship during Louis's reign. In addition, France was considered the military leader of Europe. This military might allowed France to develop a strong empire of colonies, which provided resources and goods for trade. On the negative side, constant warfare and the construction of the Palace of Versailles plunged France into staggering debt. Also, resentment over tax burden imposed on the poor and Louis' abuse of power would plague his heirs and eventually lead to revolution. Absolute rule did not die with Louis XIV. His enemies in Prussia and Austria had been experimenting with their own forms of absolute monarchy, as you will learn in Section 3. <laughs>